This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. The following rustic exhibition requires discretionary viewer participation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 17 of Greetings from Allentown. I am your host, Peter Winson, and today we are taking a look at WWF Championship Wrestling from November 9th, 1985. First, I want to rewind a bit. This past week has been both a good week and a bad week for the show. I'll start with the good news. It's great to be on the pro wrestling only feed as part of the place to be nation network joining such shows as letters from center stage and it's uh last week was my most listened to show by far and i've gotten a lot of positive feedback and i appreciate that and such feedback always appreciated at greetings from allentown at gmail.com on the twitter it's GF Allentown Pod and on Facebook at GF Allentown. I guess you can search it out that way. And don't forget to rate and review on iTunes for both the pro wrestling only feed and for the greetings from Allentown feed, which I'll maintain for a while. As uh, as I mentioned last week, I paid for it for the whole year, so it's just kind of there. Uh, as for the bad news of the week. For those of you who go on to YouTube and look for the shows that I am reviewing here, which was kind of the concept that I was going for in starting the show, and I maintain a playlist, a Greetings from Allentown playlist, where you can find, say, the first episode, which is uh, Superstars of Wrestling, September 27th, 1986, that whole episode, and it goes on in order there. You may have noticed in the past week that a lot of those videos are no longer there. And it seems like there was a draconian crackdown or something or other by WWE towards some videos and some users. And as a result of that, I'm going to make it my policy from now on that I am not going to name whoever the uploader is because it's kind of a sensitive thing uh, as you might understand given what has happened here uh so it's it, there's a lot of videos there that are not <laughs> that were there that are not there anymore so it's kind of a loss and it's I thought I had understood the YouTube policy with WWE programming on there. I kind of went into it a bit in episode 10, which was WWF Action Zone, November 27th, 1994. And part of that policy was that they would put in copyright claims on the shows and they would monetize it that way, which, as I understand it, it's not much. I don't think they would get that much. I, I think I saw something that WWE gets a good amount of money from YouTube for the advertising on the monetization of such videos, but it's not as much as you might think. It's somewhere in the neighborhood of the high six figures is what I read, but that's really kind of unconfirmed. 
and uh, it 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 seems that the policy is they will pull Colise anything that's a Colosseum video, which is weird because the Colosseum videos are not on the network, and I guess it might be kind of a murky ownership situation. It was a partnership with some video production company back in the day. So if you if you post a Colosseum video, you're more likely to get into trouble, although there are Colosseum video things still up there at least the last time I checked so I guess it's one of those things where it's discretion or whatever but the thing that's really frustrating about this is these episodes that I am reviewing with the exception of the Mid-South episode which was episode 11 they're not putting these on the network in any form and it's really strange because, as I understand it, when WWE Classics 24-7, whatever, whatever it was called, when that was around, these episodes were available on there. And now they have not seen fit to put them on there. I've talked about how in the WWF old school section on the network, that appears to have not been updated since 2014. It's the same old house shows where you get one from 1989 the weird stray msg show from 1997 and then you get a bunch of msg and boston garden and philadelphia spectrum shows and then a couple from maple leaf gardens in toronto and that's it and none of them have been added so i hope that this crackdown or whatever happened doesn't dig too much into what's out there because it's an incredible learning resource for learning about the history of the business and just just seeing all this stuff plus at heart i'm an originalist with these episodes and i like having the original music there and you know a lot of people talk about the midnight express uh, <laughs> how when you watch a midnight express match it's uh, dubbed over the great uh, giorgio Moroda uh, theme there but the thing that kind of drives me nuts about the music is I'm watching in preparing for last week's show on WCW Worldwide 1998 I watched a couple of nitros from around the time that aired and Chris Jericho of course uh, huge on the scene in WCW the cruiserweight champion or well he was trading it with Dean Malenko during that time period you watch it on the network and Jericho's theme in WCW was <laughs> I cannot believe that they would do do this sort of thing, but they took Pearl Jam's Even Flow and just masked it by going backwards with it, and that was the theme. And in the network uh, versions, in their infinite wisdom, they have decided to dub in the Chris Jericho Break the Walls Down, which, of course, was his WWF theme coming in in 1999, and it just throws me for a loop every time I... Every time I hear that, it just it just bugs me for whatever reason. And this is why I like to hear the original music on these shows. I like to hear what, what kind of things they're using for the bumpers because it kind of indicates uh, what was the popular music at the time. And you know, on this show, I value that very much as I use songs that were popular during the time period. So you'll hear something from November 1985 
that was on the charts during that time period. And music is very much intertwined with this episode because November 1985 was the month that the WWF released the wrestling album, which historically seems to be overshadowed a bit by the Piledriver album that came out two years later in late 1987. That the wrestling album was the first compilation of songs that they put together uh, for very, you have the Land of a Thousand Dances video where it faced some criticism for a breach somewhat of kayfabe because you have the heels and the faces in the same place. Of course, they divided it up where the heels were on one side singing the song and then you have the baby faces on the other side singing the song. And, uh, of course, you had Junkyard Dogs grab them cakes. He's going to be on Piper's Pit on this particular show. And uh, that is an album that when I went to a vinyl record store uh, a couple months ago, I was looking around for uh, something else. I can't remember what I bought on that day. That was probably the day I bought Huey Lewis Sports or something for my wall of fame. Gap Band 4 was a recent inductee as well. I saw that they had the wrestling album there, vinyl. It was $30, which felt like a pretty big pill to swallow. But now I'm thinking, should I have just sucked it up and paid the $30 for that and put it on the wall there? And I'm thinking that I should have. So after I record this, I may run down to that same record store and see if they still have that. Plus, there's a very good coffee place right across the hall from that, that particular shop. So it doesn't, doesn't hurt to have that. I also want to talk about, before we get into the show, which is quite star-studded today, uh, is WWF 1985 is kind of divided into a first half and second half. And the first half gets all the attention, obviously, for the first WrestleMania and the build-up to that and just how big of a success it was. But if you're going to make me choose between the first half of 85 and the second half of 85, you can give me the second half of 85 every day of the week, twice on Sunday, three times on Thursday, uh, whatever cliche you want to throw out there. And I'll, I'll tell you why. You, got, you had a couple of additions come in around the exact midpoint of the year that really freshened things up. And one of them would stay for a long time to come, and another would not be there very long, but of course was just amazing during the brief time that he was in the WWF. The short timer, of course, was Terry Funk, who came in in June and debuted by beating the hell out of Mel Phillips on TV for putting on his cowboy hat. So I think Mel Phillips kind of had it coming, and that was during a time when we really didn't know all the things about Mel Phillips that we would come to know and definitely didn't want to know. The other guy was Randy Macho Man Savage, who came in in July of 1985 and they did a deal where all the heel managers were jockeying for position to try and get him as one of their clients. And as it turned out, it was the lovely Elizabeth that Savage would choose as his manager in August. And of course, he was built up through the rest of the year. 
making it to the finals of the Wrestling Classic Tournament, which took place during the same week in 1985, the first true pay-per-view that the WWF ran, although it was branded as a bizarre thing called WrestleVision, which sounds like something you would have played on uh, the Intellivision or Atari 2600 or something of that sort. Savage made the finals of that tournament wrestling four matches, which, of course, was something very common for him, as we would see later on in the 1987 King of the Ring, untelevised, but Savage won that by winning four matches and, of course, WrestleMania four tournament. In 85, he wrestled the four matches and fell in the final to the Junkyard Dog, but via countout, so he was protected in that way. And we see Savage on this show, and we also see Elizabeth. And if <laughs> unfortunately, this show is not on YouTube at this time due to the reasons that I had mentioned earlier. But I'll get into when Savage and Liz make their appearance. This Elizabeth that we see here is completely unlike everything we would see after that point it's it's like a bizarro world and vince even makes a comment uh about it uh that really when you look back just seems crazy is something that he actually said but as i said it's a very star-studded show we have hulk hogan in action here and you might wonder why hogan would be wrestling on television well they had television sweeps periods which are the periods which are measured for ad rate purposes they would do this four times a year and the four months that they do this and it's common in tv news so your local news at 10 or news at 11 this is at least in the united states i don't know how they do it overseas during these sweeps periods you'll see on the news the particularly salacious stories that are going to get eyeballs like one soda may cause cancer or you know something really crazy like that well in a wrestling context the sweeps period is generally when you would see hotter angles and when you would see hulk hogan on television uh, the, the sweeps periods were February, May, August, November, and of course this show airing in November. In August of 85, Hogan made an appearance on television wrestling against Tiger Chung Lee, and in May he made appearances over the years facing Boris Zukov 1988, facing Bob Orton 1987, and he's made appearances in February, as I recall, as well. But, of course, that was why the main event there was scheduled for February. Well, actually, that might have been more for uh, with an eye towards WrestleMania in 88, 89, 90, and 91. I can't remember if that was actually a main event primetime on Friday because NBC was so sour on everything by that time that it really didn't matter. But, of course, other than Hogan... We also have the British Bulldogs on the show, and they have an announcement before their match that's of great interest. We have the Hart Foundation, and this, of course, being 1985, Hart Foundation not quite yet what they would become, but uh, fun to see Bret Hart in his early days before the tag team title reign. You have Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, always an upper 
mid-card, reliable guy during the time. He's a baby face at that point, 1985. And we got Big John Studd, who, again, a guy who was always at war with Andre the Giant, which would position him high on the card. And we kick things off, of course, with the Hillbillies. Hillbilly Jim and Uncle Elmer are in action as well. And as I said, JYD is in Piper's Pit. So let's get rolling, shall we? Any serious wrestling fan knows that Vince McMahon has this sort of weird relationship with hillbillies. It was something that he would turn to time and time again. And I think it goes back to how well the hillbilly gym thing started in 1984, as he was incredibly popular and getting loud cheers from the fans, and he was always a bit of a fun character. The problem was he got hurt in early 1985, slipping on a wet floor in San Diego, which he's going to allude to in a promo later in this show. And during the period in which he was out, they imported other hillbillies to fill in the void. And one of them was Uncle Elmer, who is Stan Frazier, and uh, a very, very large man. And also they had Cousin Luke and Cousin Junior, who are not here today. And Jim and Elmer taking on Daryl Bolin and Joe Murto, a name that should be familiar to anybody who has watched WWF television from the mid to late 80s, as he was somebody who would be on very frequently, losing all of the time. So a very memorable enhancement talent, uh, not much of a body or look to speak of. And he's got an interesting record out there on wrestling data and I I bring this up because I am in love with the guys who have absurd win-loss records but more so the guys who have exactly one win and it was kind of fun trying to trace down where this one win would have taken place for Joe Murto because wrestling data has him at 1 in 93 cage match has him at 0 in 77 so there are some holes there So, doing some cross-referencing work, I tried to trace down this one win with looking at the history of WWE.com, obviously an invaluable resource for this sort of thing. And indeed, Joe Murto defeated Steve Lombardi in Miami, Florida, January 18th, 1987, which, kind of a weird time for that, because that was around the period where Steve Lombardi was getting that strange push on television feuding with Paul Roma, which ended up being the pre-show match at WrestleMania 3. So he ends up being the only person to lose to Joe Murto. I know in previous episodes I had mentioned that I don't like to say who the jobber's name was that lost to the other jobber, but in this case it's Lombardi, and you know we all, we all know uh, <laughs> what his deal is. Joe Murto, I was trying to find out more information on him, and it's just... It's so difficult trying to track down specific information about these guys, even ones who appeared on TV time and again. And there was a Joe Murta who starred at the University of Miami in the mid-1960s in college football, 
and ended up on the Miami Dolphins for a very, very brief spell in 1968. This is very early Miami Dolphins, as they only became a franchise in 1966. And this Joe Murto was born in Miami, but I can't figure out if he's the guy who actually played football. It would put him at about 40 years old in 1985, assuming that he was 22, 23, when he graduated from college in 66, 67, 68, somewhere in there. And uh, I, I don't know if it's him. So I'm just going to move on to Jim and Elmer. I've talked a little bit about the introduction of Hillbilly Jim in episode 9 when he was shown on camera during uh, Maple Leaf Wrestling telecast. So a little bit about Uncle Elmer, who is most famous for this run in the WWF, which did not last as long as might be remembered. Uh, as I said, he was brought in as sort of a... Uh, backfill for Hillbilly Jim's injury to kind of keep the Hillbilly thing going. And he had a previous career and um, working in Memphis and in other areas as uh, Plowboy Frazier, uh, Stanley Frazier. He apparently worked as Kamala too in a loincloth, which I don't want to see this guy in a loincloth. For some reason, Kamala in a loincloth is fine, and he's a big dude, but Stan Frazier, I want no part of ever seeing him in a loincloth ever. An interesting thing about Uncle Elmer is that he is actually from where they say that he's from. Often trope in wrestling is, uh, oh, this guy is from here. Like the infamous Lex Luger is from Chicago and he couldn't name three streets in the city. Uh, Hillbilly Jim, of course, from Mudlick, Kentucky, a place that does not exist. But Elmer from Philadelphia, Mississippi, which suffers from the Portland, Maine syndrome of being a city name that is much more famous somewhere else. And Philadelphia, Mississippi is kind of an infamous place. It's in rural, kind of southeastern Mississippi. None of the interstate highways really go near it. And it's famous mostly for three things that uh, none of them particularly worked out all that great. Uh, Obviously, the first one was a uh, bad thing in the mid-1960s as three civil rights workers were murdered by Ku Klux Klansmen that uh, inspired the um, Mississippi burning trial. Uh, A second thing was Ronald Reagan in 1980. And this this is something I think that would be a much bigger deal had it happened today. But there was some criticism then. His first speech in after the 1980 Republican convention when he got the nomination was in Philadelphia, Mississippi, which was a speech about states' rights and all this sort of stuff, which is really kind of code words that to speak to a certain kind of Southerner. I don't want to go too deep into that. And the third thing in Philadelphia, Mississippi, is it is the home of Marcus Dupree, who, of course, is the subject of the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, The Best That Never Was. So a lot of things happening in that little rural town there. Uncle Elmer's WWF run is famous for one thing that's very public and two that you may and a second thing that you may not know. First thing is the Saturday night's main event wedding to that woman Joyce, which was in fact a real wedding in that they did not they were not allowed to do a fake wedding on television there. 
They did it up for the Saturday Night's Main Event. They had Tiny Tim there, who famously got married on The Tonight Show in 1969, and who I've never quite figured out what the big deal about Tiny Tim was, like, ever. I heard about it as a kid, and I saw the guy, like, that's it? That's that's who Tiny Tim is? And he's been involved in wrestling a couple of other times as well. And Elmer got married on there and had some trouble with the wedding vows, famously. And Jesse Ventura, who in interviews has sworn that this is the best and funniest thing that he's ever done, he was instructed by Vince McMahon to just go out and bury Elmer. Probably because Vince, look at him, he's, he's fat. He's fat. Make fun of him. And Jesse did, and there are so many great lines from Jesse, but there's one that uh, I think he said that might have been the best thing he ever said in his career. Jesse, what do you think of that? Look at that. It looks like two carp in the Mississippi River going after the same piece of corn. And it wasn't only just that. It was Jesse kind of badgering Elmer through the entire thing for being unable to hear, telling Joyce that she should get away now. And, you know, when they said in sickness and in health, and they both look sick. It was marred slightly when uh, Joyce, the, uh, the bride there, was talking and somebody threw something from the crowd and hit her, like, in the head, which was a little, uh, little much. It's a, a rowdy Meadowlands, New Jersey crowd there. And they actually cheered when Roddy Piper came out to kind of interrupt the proceedings and basically just run down everybody involved. You had Hogan and Andre in the ring, which... Also, some hilarity there as Andre shows up in his wrestling trunks with, like, full banana hammock Andre going on. And, of course, Hogan, we all know how Hogan dressed for formal occasions, you know, based on his recent court cases. And he had the normal Hogan getup, and then they had the whole wedding reception afterwards. And you have a table at the reception that is Jesse, Hogan, Okerlund, and Paul Orndorff. And I was thinking, well, I know it's Table for Three, but that would be one hell of a special uh, called Table for Four. That's on uh, the second Saturday Night's Main Event, which I did cover in my blog, section309.com, a long time ago. I can't remember exactly what I wrote or if I picked up all these little nuances from the wedding ceremony, like every single Uncle Elmer... (laughs) mistake that he made because he was a really uh, a bumbling fool here and he was not very much in the ring now the second thing that may not be as well known with Elmer is he did have the appearance at Wrestlemania 2 losing to Adrian Adonis rather quickly it was under three minutes that match which is fine because it's Uncle Elmer we're talking about here I don't know Adonis could go much longer than three minutes despite him not having the best body but Uncle Elmer not so much Elmer had really stopped making appearances before Wrestlemania 2 in the results on the history of WWE.com there's a lot of uh, substitutions being made for him in the lead-up to that you think okay so he shows up for Wrestlemania 2 and that's going to be fine during this match they actually tease a feud with Elmer and Bundy and that's where we come to a Saturday night's main event in May of 1986 that was in Providence Rhode Island that was to have a King Kong Bundy Uncle Elmer match and this was recounted by Hillbilly Jim on an old episode of 
Cole Cabana's podcast, The Art of Wrestling. I forget which episode number it was, but it was quite some time ago. I think it might be in the premium archives for Colt now, because I think it was 2013 or before. And Jim had recalled how they couldn't find Elmer, and they needed to do something. And what they did was they flew Hillbilly Jim from the West Coast into Providence to take the place of Elmer because they couldn't find him. And then, as it turned out, Elmer did show up for the show and lose to Bundy very, very quickly. I think it was about a minute. And that was the last you would hear of Uncle Elmer in the WWF. So a very short stay as one of Hillbilly Jim's cronies here. And uh, about Hillbilly Jim's song, Don't Go Messing With a Country Boy, that is so catchy. Of course, that was on the wrestling album. And I don't, uh, I, I probably should have become a copyright lawyer, although I would have gone absolutely insane in law school, probably dealing with other people. And just, the, the, I know that the way that I was at that time, it would not have been a good fit. But copyright law, obviously something, you know, my opening segment here kind of went into that a bit. And you'll notice that Hillbilly Jim's Don't Go Messing With a Country Boy is often dubbed over on the network with a different hillbilly-ish song and nobody really seems to know the deal with that and because you figure it was on that album it was performed by hillbilly jim who has a friendly relationship with wwe he was on the legends house show in 2014 so nobody really seems to know the deal uh jim does use it as i guess his theme song on his serious xm show which I don't know what channel that's on because I do not listen to the country music channels all that much. I listen to No Shoes occasionally, but other than that, I don't really catch much of the country music channels on satellite radio. So here we start out with uh, Murdo and Jim, and they have kind of a, a face-off there, and then they do that thing where they both tag out. So now you got Daryl Bolin and Uncle Elmer there, and Elmer's offense is... is the least dynamic you could possibly find. I've mentioned many times, I, I like big guys in the ring from time to time, but Elmer had really no redeeming values at all, and he couldn't really do much in the ring other than kind of you know run in, have guys run into him and maybe an elbow drop, which he, he does elbow Joe Murto later on, but it's kind of a standing elbow. Elbow You didn't really want Elmer uh, leaving his feet all that much. Uh, Hillbilly Jim gets the win with the bear hug here. I forgot that he had used that as a finisher, uh, as uh, he would use the big boot later on, because, of course, they would play off the Hillbilly Jim had his boots given to him by Hulk Hogan. And it was one of the first Hulk Hogan crony friends that was sort of brought in and sort of uh, given the rub by Hulk Hogan, Un unless you really want to count Gene Okerlund in that weird match that they had that appeared on one of the Coliseum releases where he tagged with Hulk Hogan, because I think Gene Okerlund was perfectly fine uh, <laughs> coming into WWF, uh, although I don't particularly care for him as a color guy, which I'll get into when I get to a early 84 WWF show in which Oakland is on color. Uh, actually, I probably did say that in episode two because it was Gene and Vince. But yeah, Oakland had a role that was interviewer and studio guy. 
And he was excellent at those things with the quick wit and all that, but on color and even on play-by-play, which he did on some MSG shows, I'm not really a huge fan. So, of course, we get the hillbilly dancing after the match, and we just get a classic Vince McMahon laugh. (laughs) And all Vince is really laughing at there is Hillbilly Jim doing a cartwheel, which he actually kind of does and looks, you know, kind of impressive for a guy that tall. And, you know, we get Howard Finkel doing the little do-si-do with Uncle Elmer, and the crowd is clapping along with it. Like I said, catchy song, not quite to the level of John Denver's Thank God I'm a Country Boy. Uh, Very similar songs, but John Denver uh, still a number one in that category in my book. In reading the review of this show that Brian Bayless did for Scott Keith's website, which is now at blogofdoom.com, but for his review for this show is archived elsewhere. He he had a copy that had an update segment where they talked about the wrestling album, but this is missing from this particular copy of the show that I was viewing uh, to do this. And uh, so it's just going to kind of be covered as we go along. I've alluded to the Land of a Thousand Dancers kind of breach of kayfabe there. Later on, we're going to see Junkyard Dog, who, of course, has a song on there. I mentioned Hillbilly Jim. Of course, also on that album was uh, Real American by Rick Derringer, which, of course, was not written for Hulk Hogan, because also on that album by the WWF All-Stars is, quote, Hulk Hogan's theme. And there was something I found out about that theme that really wowed me to death when I found it, because it was one of those things where I wish somebody had told me about it a long time ago. Piper has his own song, Mean Gene Okerlund with Tutti Frutti, and then you have the Nikolai Volkov comedy song at the end. So we'll just kind of skip that and kind of touch on the wrestling album going along as we have yet another chapter in the never-ending saga of Big John Studd versus Andre the Giant, which two weeks ago the roles were reversed, but now we're in the more traditional Andre is the babyface and Studd is the heel. And Studd is here to take on Sal G, who I, I wish I had more on him, because sometimes he would he would appear and his name would be spelled Sal G, G E E as it is here. Other times it would be Sal G, and it would just be the letter G. And anyway, Stud has uh, Bundy with him as backup, King Kong Bundy, and also Bobby the Brain Heenan, who is very well dressed for this in kind of a suit and black number underneath that. Uh, is a very different Heenan early in his tenure, as I alluded to on the Maple Leaf Wrestling Show, Episode 9 in the archives. And the brain is very upset that he has lost the Manager of the Year contest for 1985, which was the WWF scam to get addresses for their catalog. You would write in and vote for the Manager of the Year. And effectively, there were three finalists, as it were, on um, one of the shows. I forget the exact episode. Uh, Hillbilly Jim, as he was managing the Hillbillies. You had Captain Lou Albano, who was managing the U.S. Express 
for much of the year to that time. And then you had Bobby the Brain Heenan and his you know whole family up to that point. And Heenan had won the voting. And in what has to be considered a bit of a screw job and some real electoral malfeasance or whatever word you want to use, Hillbilly Jim decided to uh, give away his votes to Captain Lou Albano. And for some reason, they allowed this. So... Lou Albano wins Manager of the Year for 1985, which, by the way, they gave away in the middle of the year, which I thought was strange. You don't give the American League MVP at the All-Star break. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. And Heenan was incensed by this, and rightly so. And the Heenan family was on kind of the warpath at this point. Uh, They had laid out Andre at Maple Leaf Gardens in August, which aired on October 1st episode of Primetime Wrestling. You had the splashes by Bundy that, quote-unquote, broke Andre's sternum as you always kind of needed a way to write Andre off because he was really starting to break down in 85. And so we have this match here, G and Stud, and G tries to slam Stud two times in the beginning, which really just leaves me scratching my head because apparently Sal hadn't been filled in on the fact that the $15,000 body slam challenge, that whole thing was over. So there's really no point in trying to slam Stud, although that wouldn't stop King Tonga a year from now from running in and slamming Stud on television, which, of course, is something that everybody promptly forgot. Like, let's all forget that Haku ran into the ring and slammed Stud. You know, could have been pushed as more of a power guy, but whatever. So he tries to slam Stud, and Stud just kind of hammers him a bit. And then you hear a loud crowd noise. And what's happening is they're trying to do that thing where, oh, what's going on here? And it's Andre the Giant. And he's got Lou Albano with him. Which is kind of an interesting thing in that it's rather forgotten that Andre was kind of represented by Albano as a manager on television. And that's because he he wasn't really around as Andre the Giant after WrestleMania 2 as he would become part of the machines and of course the machines were uh, represented by Albano to an extent but uh, you never really think of Albano being Andre's manager of course in 1987 you had the Andre turn and the only kind of reference to Albano being I never know whether to say Albano Albano or Albano, but in any event, the only real kind of reference to him and Andre during the turn with Hogan is Albano goes on Piper's Pit in March of 87 and tries to talk sense into Andre, and that's kind of the only time that that was ever really brought up. Of course, they also appeared together in Herb Abrams' UWF in 1990, which I I should probably, if I could track down one of those episodes, that might be uh, humorous to kind of look at. I I think on the uh, OVP podcast, I think they did a UWF thing in their brief reviews that they do at the end of their episodes. So there's some noise, and Andre joins the broadcast booth. (laughs) So trying to understand... Andre is always a bit of a challenge. They kind of diverted from the whole match here and just kind of focus on Andre. And uh, I'm going to make an attempt to try and translate what Andre is saying here. 
I don't tell you fans, I don't think commission don't let me go close to the ring. But that's okay. I don't tell you one thing. I want to chat out those guys again and again. All right, let me consult my Andre to English dictionary on this. I, I know I don't exactly speak the King's English or anything here, but I'll give this a go. I will tell you fans one thing. The commission won't let me get close to the ring. I'll challenge these guys again and again. I'll never be tired to wrestling and those guys. And I will promise you one thing. It's like I said before, I'm going to get even with John Stott. And I'm going to get even. I'm going to cut his hair, but I'm going to take my time. But I'm going to do it all the way. Wow, this is tough. All right, let me, let me give this a go. I'll never retire to wrestling those guys, and I will promise you one thing, because like I said before, I'm going to get even with John Studd, and I'm going to get even. I'm going to cut his hair, but I'm going to take my time, but I'm going to do it all the way. So yes, that is what Andre <laughs> apparently said there, but it does go on. Nobody, nobody bit me yet, and I'm not lost the match yet. And that's the way I want to stay in the field. Yeah, but nobody beat me yet, and I not lost a match yet, and that's the way I want to stay, undefeated. I never know, but bury uh, me before they're going to put me down. They're going to have lots of trouble. All right, that's it. That broke me. I, I'm not even going to try on that one. Uh, stud with an elbow drop for the victory. Obviously, not much of the attention on him. Uh, a lot of focus there on Andre's undefeated streak. Of course, we all know now that he had been defeated many times. Uh, El Canic in Mexico before this. And, you know, there, there were other points, you know, DQ or whatever. But this is something that they were starting to play up. And, of course, that would come into play huge in early 87 because that would be the biggest part of the build to WrestleMania three with Andre and Hogan. A stud would stick around uh, to late 1986, uh, but really just disappeared from the scene before his comeback in 89, which I talked about a couple of shows ago. Promo time as Gene Okerlund is joined by Mr. Wonderful, Paul Orndorff. And Okerlund runs down some of Orndorff's credentials. He's drafted by the New Orleans Saints and played with the Chicago Bears. The latter of which is complete nonsense as Orndorff never actually played in the NFL. He may have played in the World Football League, which lasted for two seasons, 1974 and 75, as a competitor to the NFL, but I can't really find any statistical records on that because nobody really cares about the World Football League, save for maybe Miami Dolphins fans because that kind of played a role in derailing that Dolphins 72-73 dynasty as it, it kind of signed away some of the players like Larry Zonka. Orndorff was kind of a star in college. I mean, you wouldn't have gotten drafted in the NFL, although they did have a lot more rounds back then. He was drafted in the 12th round by the Saints, but actually left before. I think there was a problem with his physical or whatever, and he really kind of chose pro wrestling anyway. It'd be kind of an interesting exercise to take 
the list of football players who went on to become wrestlers and create a football team just out of that. Orndorff was actually a running back at the University of Tampa, which is kind of surprising. You would almost think of him as being a bigger guy, so maybe like a linebacker or perhaps an offensive lineman. But on any all-star team of wrestlers who were also football players, he'd probably be the backup to former NWA champion Bronco Nagurski, who was a big football star in the 20s and 30s and kind of had wrestling as his part-time gig. It's also amusing to think about the fact, and maybe I'm missing somebody obvious, but Eric Watts would probably actually be one of the quarterbacks on the team since he did quarterback at Louisville, although it would require you to acknowledge uh, Eric Watts as a wrestler. Now, Orndorff, uh, his his run here, the beauty of Paul Orndorff is he's a babyface. They refer to the bounty put on him by Bobby the Brain Heenan, which ended up never being collected, and he just went back to Heenan, which is kind of a bizarre twist in all of that. Uh, the beauty of Orndorff is that as a face and a heel, he was kind of the same guy. It was a very, very little difference in how he would conduct himself. Yes, perhaps as a heel, he would act more arrogant and preening around the ring, but he was still the same basic character, and I, I like that. So when you look at him, he's kind of a guy that you could plug in in a situation as a face or a heel as needed. And, of course, they kept turning him back and forth. He, he kind of got the Lex Luger treatment where... In the odd-numbered years, he would be primarily a babyface, and in the even-numbered years, he would primarily be a heel. Kind of like, you know, the old Brett Saberhagen was only good in odd-numbered years thing. I don't, I don't know. Or the, more recently, the San Francisco Giants winning the World Series in three even-numbered years in a row. Back to Orndorff, impassioned promo here, where he says that he's no different from the fans sitting around ringside. He just wants to make a living and you know, feed his family and whatnot. And uh, he he kind of has like a bit of a psychotic edge to him. And I think Orndorff is a guy that would hold up really well in today's wrestling. Of course, I did read uh, from uh, somewhere that he, he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder at some point. So I don't know uh, how much that feeds into it. But I do consider Mr. Wonderful to be a bit of an underrated promo guy overall. I tried calling, but they don't have a listing for Mr. Wonderful. What uh, spelling did you use? We have a different Mr. right here, Mr. X. And he is teaming with The Menace. Both masked men... <laughs> I'll get into who Mr. X is a little bit later. Nobody seems to know who the menace is. And they are taking on the British Bulldogs. And British Bulldogs here in 1985 are just kind of... They're a weird example of a team in WWF, or really any wrestler in WWF, who they were kind of back and forth. They were very much in and out of the promotion throughout the entire year. Uh, at the start of 85, they were not there, and they reemerged slightly before WrestleMania, appearing on TV, but they're not on the WrestleMania card. And they have matches for a little bit, and they disappear in May and June, where they make appearances in Japan Pro Wrestling, the Ricky Choshu offshoot group. 
and they participate in something called the Big Lariat Festival, which is an awesome name. I'm no expert on Japan, and I'm not going to present myself as such, but I love that name, the Big Lariat Festival. And, of course, Japan Pro Wrestling, they co-promoted with All Japan, and the Bulldogs were working with All Japan Pro Wrestling during the summer, and the Dynamite Kid actually for a very brief period won the NWA International Junior Heavyweight title, that's a mouthful, off of Mighty Inoue and lost it a couple days later to Kuniaki Kobayashi. And the loss was actually by DQ, so it's one of those deals where, you know, get the title off him. And they would come back to WWF in the fall. They would get their first title shot on television on the September 21st, 1985 episode of Championship Wrestling against the Valentine and Beefcake Dream Team. They would prevail by DQ, but that would start the chase for the British Bulldogs. But once again, they did go back to Japan to participate in the Real World Tag League in 1985 All Japan Pro Wrestling. And they finished in a tie for sixth there. There were a lot of really good and interesting teams in the 1985 Tag League. The winners of that were Stan Hansen and Ted DiBiase. And in second place, in a second place tie, you had four teams, Jumbo Saruta and Janichiro Tenru, and also tied with Harley Race and Jesse Barr. That strikes me as kind of an odd team. Jimmy Jack Funk and Harley Race, who they had actually proposed for the Jimmy Jack Funk role, and they would have called him the Hangman, which I think Harley Race would have done amazing things with. Also tied for second, Giant Baba and Dory Funk Jr., and also Ricky Choshu and Yoshiaki Yatsu. And the Bulldogs finished tied for six with Nick Bockwinkle and Kurt Henning and Rusha Kimura and Ashura Hara. And I hope I pronounced those Japanese names correctly because, like I said, I'm not going to present myself as an expert on Japan wrestling. There are plenty of other shows on the Pro Wrestling Only feed that can handle that part of the world. But after the Real World Tag League, they came back to WWF and the chase was on and they were almost certainly assisted by something that happens before the end of this ma- before the start of this match I should say Howard Finkel says that the Bulldogs have an announcement but the Bulldogs don't actually make the announcement they let Howard Finkel announce it because the Bulldogs not exactly great on the microphone so it was a blessing that they brought in Captain Louis Albano the guiding light of tag teams to be the manager And, of course, as I said, the reasoning was that they were a team, Davey Boy and the Dynamite Kid, who desperately needed somebody to talk for them. And as baby faces, that's difficult because a baby face manager is not something that works all that well. Of course, Albano was beloved after his turn in late 1984. He'd done a number of things. Charity for... uh, Multiple sclerosis, I think it was. It was multiple sclerosis, multiple muscular dystrophy. I forget which one, but he was beloved by the fans in 85. He didn't have the U.S. Express anymore under his uh, guidance because Barry Windham had just kind of left the promotion very suddenly after the title change to the Dream Team in 
August. And one thing that helped is the Bulldogs are very good in-ring workers, but WWF at the time was not a place where you could necessarily get over on ring work alone, and I think Albano really helped to establish credibility there. As I said, the fans were very much behind this, and Vince uh, <laughs> Vince was kind of funny on this show. He kind of starts imitating the Lou, Lou, Lou chant uh, at one point. Amazing. I probably have to isolate all of that out because that's another great Vince fake laugh. And the Lulu, Lulu, Lulu. I don't know when I'd be able to use that, but uh, <laughs> I, th- I think I've got to use it again at some point. <laughs> Makes it sound like Vince is some sort of robot and he had his wires crossed or like a record player that's skipping or whatever. But anyway, to the match here, we get an Enziguri by Dynamite Kid on the charging Mr. X, and then a monkey flip. Uh, And then we get the uh, switch out with Davey Boy and The Menace. And there is a very botched (laughs) crossbody by Davey Boy where instead of waiting for the crossbody, The Menace turns his back. So you effectively see uh, Davey Boy do a crossbody block into a guy's back. And they go into a chin lock to kind of reset this thing before it gets a little too out of hand. The Menace actually is granted some offense after that little screw-up there. And he gets a uh, two-count after a drop kick. And Bruno starts praising the Menace for some reason, which I found kind of funny. Uh, Dynamite gets back in there and starts uh, controlling this again on the Menace with a nice snap suplex. Uh, gotta love that. Dynamite Kid Snap Suplex. Then we get Davy Boy with a move that we'd see from him for years to come, the running power slam. Kid gets back in there and delivers a clothesline and sets him up on the top rope and delivers a true top rope superplex with Kid. Kid has both of his feet on the top rope delivering the superplex. And for some reason, my mind immediately goes to I don't know, man. Bob Orton somewhere in the back's got to be really pissed off seeing his finisher get used and having it look better. Although Orton would do the float over thing at the end from time to time. And uh, Dynamite, uh, <laughs> it's it's funny. Dynamite and Bob Orton would meet again as in December of 86, it was a match in Hamilton where Dynamite suffered that fluke back injury that would effectively derail him for the rest of his career he was never really the same and it was Bob Orton coincidentally enough who was in the ring with him Dynamite's superplex came into play in a match at the wrestling classic that same week against Randy Savage and this is also on my list of all-time favorite matches under five minutes Dynamite versus Randy Savage And the finish of that is Dynamite hits the superplex, but somehow Savage is able to turn it into a cradle when they both land, and he gets the three count. I particularly like that finish, and I'm not sure if I've ever seen that done anywhere else, but it was uh, pretty, (laughs) pretty good. Now, as for Mr. X, Mr. X is somebody that the British Bulldogs would come to know much more closely later on, That is Danny Davis, 
under the hood who would often work double shots he would work as Mr. X in a match and he would also work as a referee likely the most famous Mr. X match took place in Toronto in late 1986 involving the honky-tonk man as a baby face which was something that blew my mind when I found that out that they wanted honky-tonk man to come in as a baby face and Mr. X was getting cheered by the Toronto crowd in a very early edition of Toronto being the quote-unquote bizarro land for fans. Um, I, I was also interested to note that the Bulldogs had a match in Stampede facing, uh, who were effectively the Stampede International Tag Team Champions, Ron Starr and Honky Tonk Wayne, who of course was the Honky Tonk Man, and they actually beat the British Bulldogs on November 15, 1985. They had a three-match series in Stampede, as I guess the kid and uh, Davy Boy were just kind of doing a quick stopover to may- maybe draw a gate or whatever. Uh, uh, this was the revival of Stampede after kind of it stopped in late 84 and everything sort of moved into Vince and then there's a whole cloudy area there but these Bulldogs here you still have Dynamite Kid in uh, he's not crippled and you got Davy Boy coming along so just a really good and fun team to watch in 85 WF Back to Okerlund in the video area, and he is with the Iron Sheik and Fred Blassie, who he refers to as an octogenarian, the WWF's octogenarian, although Blassie was only 67 years old at that time, so uh, Okerlund's adding 13 years on. And Blassie starts in with uh, the Iron Sheik as the real world's champion and claims that Sheik was cheated out of it back in January of 84, which is kind of a funny touch there considering we're we're closing in on two years since the point of that match. But they're saying that they want the bounty, and Okerlund kind of points out that Blassie is a little flashy with money and should perhaps consider saving some of it. And Blassie just says that you you should spend it if you got it. I mean, you know, you can't take it with you when you die or anything. So (laughs) there's that. Sheik, uh, for his part, uh, again, I'm not going to try to do a translation like I did with Andre, but he's uh, really contradictory here. He, On the one hand, he's saying that he's not money-hungry, but he really wants that bounty on Orndorff anyway. So just something quick to establish that everybody is coming after Paul Orndorff, who is in our next match against another masked man, the third masked man of the show, the Gladiator, who is just Rick Hunter working under the hood there. Hey. Strange week. Earlier on, we saw Mr. X in a mask, the Menace in a mask, and now this uh, gladiator. We all know about Vince yelling into the headset 
on Raw and kind of dictating what Michael Cole can and can't say. Was this 1985 Vince's passive-aggressive way of pointing out, hey, you morons, we put three masked guys on the same show here. Although I can't get enough of these uh, masked guys because it's... uh, I don't know. It's it's always interesting, and it and it protects the guy who's under the mask. So there's really no harm in it. It's it's a trope that people seem to enjoy. Of course, Vince's mood changes here as the gladiator is a little too proud of himself, and he gets hit with a drop kick by Orndorff. And uh, it's pretty cool to see a guy like Orndorff get up for a drop kick. So we get another great Vince laugh. <laughs> I think it was David Bixenspan of the Between the Sheets podcast who either either on twitter or on the show said something like vince doesn't laugh he just does a simulation of how he thinks a human would laugh <laughs> i've i found that particularly humorous drop toehold by orndorff showing off that wrestling prowess and he goes for the mask which is always kind of funny it's like nobody really cares who the gladiator actually is but he's just going to go for the mask to humiliate him anyway uh, he hits him with a right hand, and Gladiator goes over the top, and Orndorff is just really, really vicious here for a mid-1980s babyface. As I said, his character very much the same, whether it be face and heel with maybe some slight subtle changes. And Orndorff 85 babyface version is just a guy I would like to put in my wrestling time machine or DeLorean and bring him over now because I think he would be crazy over with fans no matter where he would be in today's world. Uh, I'd like to pack him in the car with 1984 Dr. D. David Schultz because I would just love to see him working in today's wrestling environment. That would be a lot of fun. We get some more mat work from Orndorff leads to a two count and they allude to the Land of a Thousand Dances video. So we get that plug in. And uh, Gladiator, he misses on the S.D. Jones Memorial Charge to the Corner to transition things back. And Orndorff up top hits the Gladiator with an elbow to the top of his head. And he makes the sign for the pile driver. And Orndorff would do this pile driver as good as anybody in WWF. Uh, you know, a lot of tight lawlers, pile driver and Bret Hart's pile driver. And if I'm going to put Orndorff and Bret Hart on the same plane, I'm going to give the tiebreaker advantage to Orndorff because it's more freely acknowledged that it was his finisher, whereas Bret, as I said, they like to pretend that he was doing the sharpshooter all along, but he was doing a pretty good pile driver, almost the Paul Orndorff one, where he would really jump up and drive the guy in. And Orndorff, always very smart, improving that he could work today's style. Yes, he is facing the hard camera when he does the pile driver, so they'd be very happy. He would not have to spend four years in NXT working matches in Venice, Florida. So that's, (laughs) although Orndorff, you know, being from Tampa, maybe he wouldn't mind that so much. But uh, yeah, he could definitely work today's style. Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Hey, pro wrestling announcer Kevin Kelly here. I want to make sure you are all subscribed to all the great feeds here at Place to Be Nation. It's really easy to do. Just head to iTunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search and subscribe to the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, which, of course, includes the full archives of The Kevin Kelly Show, 
the Place to Be Nation pod feed, and the Pro Wrestling Only feed. Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And be sure to give Justin your true thoughts. I mean, don't hold back. After all, he is kind of a jerk. Just listen to Scott. Place to be nations, JT Rosero here, and I want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaceToBeNation.com, and we now offer them to you on two great feeds. On the Place to be Nation wrestling feed, you can check out Scott Criscolo and me on the Mothership, the Place to be podcast, with our famous Vintage Vault pay-per-view reviews. PTBN also covers current day wrestling with clotheslines and headlines, main event, Lucha Afterground, and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows, and we leave wrestling's past with our monthly pay-per-view rewind series led by Ben Morse. The Our Vantage Point podcast, which features a potpourri-style look at wrestling history. And Survey Says, a fun look back at the good, bad, and ugly of WCW. And on our very popular Place of Nation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as the Glenn Butler podcast, Our Spectacular, Rank and File, PTBN Dadcast, NBA Team, and Lucha Undead, as well as a veritable podcast heaven for comics fans with hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversations, Geek and Sassy, and the Imaginary Stories. You can find all these current shows plus archives of our past podcasts, including The Kevin Kelly Show, as well by subscribing to both feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All these shows plus others available at PlaceVation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments, and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlaceVation.com backslash Amazon when doing your online shopping. And download our free PTB Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, TheHistoryOfWrestling.com, and Scott Key's Blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceToBeNation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. So do check out everything on the Place to Be Nation and the Pro Wrestling Only feeds, and also go to PlaceToBeNation.com wide variety of stuff for whatever your pleasure so do check that out right now we got piper's pit with the junkyard dog and they're going to discuss grab them cakes the junkyard dog theme song that would replace another one bites the dust in wrestling sometimes i like to have a dividing line a sort of before and after kind of you know like the birth of christ you know before christ and anno domini or whatever it is for ad and it's kind of when guys started to turn sour uh with andre the giant there's actually multiple uh levels of that uh, what one of which is the but the one that I like to point out the most is when he changed to the from the black to the blue singlet in 1989. That's when his kind of work in the ring was kind of reaching the point where it was a little embarrassing to watch. With the junkyard dog, he uh, became rather lazy in the ring. I think anybody could admit that. And the exact point, I think, when that happened was the switchover from another one bites the dust to grab them cakes. As, you know, he did put on a lot of weight, so he was grabbing a lot of cakes. And this is a very interesting segment for some reasons that have nothing to do with the junkyard dog. The fall of 1985 was a very interesting time in the career of Rowdy Roddy Piper. As I mentioned earlier, he had the interruption on the wedding of Uncle Elmer. That was on the October 5th, 1985. 
episode of Saturday Night's main event. And we also had him engaging in a little mini feud with Rick McGraw that lasted over a couple of weeks during this time frame that would have a rather sad end to it. So Piper has Rick McGraw on the pit. And it's a bit of the kind of usual thing that they would do. McGraw, ha, 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 you wear a skirt. And Piper says, I'm not used to having losers and geeks on this show, which is funny because, you know, he had Frank Williams on there in 84, one of the most famous segments he ever had. And they have a back and forth. McGraw calls out Piper saying, how come you never have matches on TV? I never see you wrestle. And Piper should have replied, well, you see, they have this thing called sweeps periods, and I'm a big star, and they only put me on during the sweeps period. Well, in any event, yes, they would have a match the following week, which would fall in the sweeps period, November 2nd, 85. And uh, this is, of course, because uh, McGraw slapped Piper, a rather gentle slap, not exactly Ronnie Garvin laying it in there, and uh, Orton is kept away as the bodyguard. He went after McGraw, but he's kept away by Piper. So they have the match on the November 2nd episode of Championship Wrestling. And this is so bizarre how this went down. So Piper beats the hell out of him with a, a DDT, a sw- series of swinging neck breakers, and McGraw gets carried out. There's only one problem with this whole deal. Rick McGraw died a day before this would have aired on November 1st. So at the time, there was perhaps some confusion that maybe Roddy Piper had actually killed Rick McGraw on television during this match because kayfabe, of course, much stronger back then. So it's something that was believed by some people. Of course, the truth was that Rick McGraw, a a real small guy in terms of height, but rather built, he he had used some things to kind of increase that build, shall we say, and it was uh, not a good thing and ended up leading to his demise, which is something that we would see all too frequently in the years to come. So kind of a complicated area for... Uh, you know, he's navigating complicated waters, Piper, during this time frame because the the match with McGraw was actually earlier in this taping. So as they're taping this, you know, McGraw is still very much alive, but by the time it would air, he would be gone. And he's got JYD on there. JYD, uh, one of the great African American stars in professional wrestling history, and Piper being a guy who would always have this weird thing with race. People remember the uh, black and white deal at WrestleMania six, where he painted half of his body black and nobody quite understood why. And Piper gave this ridiculous focaccia response to, I think it was in the WrestleMania 30 year anniversary book that came out a few years ago where he pinned it on, well, Cindy Lauper had come out with a book called True, uh, with a song called True Colors. And I was trying to make, oh, come on, Roddy. I mean, we all know what it probably was. 
And then, of course, you had the Jimmy Snuka thing, which was uh, towing a racial line there with the bananas and the coconut and all that. And there's probably much more that I'm not even thinking about in terms of Piper with uh, issues of race. Uh, JYD, obviously, not very trusting of Piper and orton here he's very wary walking onto the set he doesn't sit down he kind of just stands and puts a foot on a chair and piper says to him give me some skin cream as in he was calling him so this led to me in my research for these shows i sometimes have to do bizarre things and i have to go into incognito mode (laughs) And, and so i end up doing a search cream racial slur and i couldn't really find too much about that other than the cream of wheat guy which i don't know if piper was actually referring to that although who knows piper would go to some weird places of course the first thing that comes to mind for me is the jyd angle with the fabulous freebirds in the very early 1980s where the freebirds blinded jyd with the hair removal cream that caused jyd to not be able to see at the birth of his daughter so very emotional angle there uh piper and them they ask where's the uh where's the girl i guess it's in reference to vicky sue robinson who had some sort of backup vocal on the song or whatever i'm not entirely sure what he's getting at and jyd says i'm talking to her and it's just one of those things. Okay, Piper wears a kilt. Ha, ha, ha. We call it a skirt. Oh, my God. That thing got so overdone. It was more overdone than even the, uh-oh, the heel is afraid of Jake Roberts's snake Damien, which, of course, was done time and time again. Piper says, are you ribbing me? And he starts, uh, <laughs> he starts putting over his own song from the wrestling album, which was For Everybody which not really much of a song there i mean in the pecking order on the wrestling album it certainly ranks behind grab them cakes and a few of the other things like eat your heart out rick springfield and of course mean gene okerlin's uh, version of tutti frutti and this just kind of sort of ends it was really not much of a segment here jyd kind of standing up to piper and bob orton and just a way of promoting the wrestling album. I love that verse of Sun City by the artist United Against Apartheid. I just bought the vinyl album for my wall of fame here. Even though Bono, kind of in the air, kind of at the end there, kind of goes into business from stealth with a little extra stylistic whatever. So what? Bono's hair in that video is really something else. And, of course, the, it, it is on YouTube, so go check that out. And now we have the Heart Foundation, and they are in kind of a 
burgundy-ish, maybe more maroon tights, and not quite the pink and black attack that they would become later, as they were not pushed too much yet. They're facing Jimmy Jackson and Steve Gaterwolf, and Steve Gaterwolf being uh, pretty much the scum of the earth, in jail, doing time, uh, as he was convicted several years ago on seven counts of sexual assault on a child by a person in a position of trust, in addition to another seven misdemeanor counts of sexual assault. So, uh, yeah, Gatorwolf was kind of presented as this not quite a full-blown jobber, but something a little above that, in that he was given a gimmick. At, he wore an Indian headdress, so they were almost kind of giving him that, I don't want to say like Strongbow, because Strongbow was a popular guy, Chief J. Strongbow, of course, I'm referring to. But uh, they kind of presented him as the Native American of the day, and uh, luckily you didn't get to see too much of that, given where he is now. Jimmy Jackson, just kind of an enhancement talent, not uh, not anybody who uh, really amounted to much. He got a couple of wins in championship wrestling from Georgia in 1985, and one WWF win against Bigfoot, another masked character who was actually, I believe, Rip Rogers, and this is not the Jimmy Jackson who was a fourth overall pick of the Dallas Mavericks in 1993, who is probably known for two things. His, well, maybe three things, because that, that Tony Braxton love triangle thing may not may or may not have actually happened. One of which is, when he was drafted, he actually held out for the first, I want to say, 60-something games of the season. I think he was drafted in 1992, come to think of it, as he refused to join the Dallas Mavericks, a team that I think went like 11-71 in 92-93. And Jimmy Jackson went on to play for a record 12 NBA teams. There are only 30 teams in the NBA, and in fact, when he came into the league, there were only 28 teams, so he ended up playing for 12 different teams, and was the last Los Angeles Laker to wear number 24 before Kobe Bryant switched from number 8 to number 24, so there's your rundown there. But back to the Hart Foundation, just kind of they had formed the team earlier in 1985. They were not too much of a pushed commodity. Having Jimmy Hart there certainly was a help. Uh, but they were they were in a program when the British Bulldogs were around. They were natural opponents for each other because they always had good chemistry, and you know they would have a rivalry that would last 85 through 86, and even into 1987 when. Dynamite was really, really limited in what he could do in the ring. So uh, the Hard Foundation here, looking a little bit different than what they were. And Gator Wolf gets a lot of offense on Neidhart early in this match, which is rather strange to see. And then when he tags out, uh, <laughs> the match from there goes like 100% in favor of the Hart Foundation. Really pushing the Jimmy Hart megaphone at ringside there as he's yelling at and taunting the fans with it. And it's kind of creating a soundtrack for the match. And Bruno, um, uh, God, God love Bruno. He's the living legend. 
and I'm staring at his LJN figure right now that I keep next to me when I'm recording. Not necessarily for luck, but because it just happens to be there. Bruno screws up the nickname for Jimmy Hart. Uh, well, of course, Jimmy Hart is known as the mouth of the South, but Bruno calls him what? It's the nuisance from the South. Well, to be fair to Bruno, I think that he probably overheard Vince calling Jim Crockett the nuisance from the South. So maybe he just got it confused there. Uh, just a really quick, I mean, like I said, Jackson, not exactly much in the ring here and gets in virtually no offense. And the hearts hit the heart attack, which I mentioned in episode four when they used that move to win the tag team titles off the British Bulldogs. That is a great looking move and it's owed entirely to Bret Hart and the way he would throw himself into that clothesline. It would really make it look effective for a 238-pound guy throwing a clothesline. He really made it look like a big move. And, of course, you can tell that the Hart Foundation are not exactly pushed and valued commodities quite yet because they're still spelling Bret, as in Bret Hart, with two T's in the graphic after the match. So, uh, not not much respect for Bret Hart at that time, but they would turn the corner uh, about a year from now. very rare moment in the canon of Hulkamania. We have a Hulk Hogan match on television in which his theme song is not Eye of the Tiger, nor is it Real American. Instead, we have Hulk Hogan's theme, as it was called on the wrestling album, sung, or not sung by, but performed by the WWF All-Stars. And I think it's a pretty cool theme. And then, come to find out, not only, of course, was it used for the Hulk Hogan wrestling cartoon, as like a closing song in there, but the guy who composed it and put it together reused it the following year for Bonnie Tyler's album, Sweet Dreams and Forbidden Fire. Now, Bonnie best known for Total Eclipse of the Heart, which came out much earlier in the 1980s. And uh, confession from me, I actually prefer the techno version of Total Eclipse of the Heart performed by Nikki French in 1995. But I digress there. Uh, this song became ravishing off the Secret Dreams and Forbidden Fire album, which uh, was the only song out of the eight on the album that was not released as a single. So kind of a kind of a strange thing there. And uh, of course, the lyrics were added in for her version. Now, as for Hogan, he's got this theme at this time and. He had it for such a short period that it's mostly forgotten. It's like the wrestling version of Mike Piazza in a Florida Marlins uniform. Yes, it happened. It was six days, but it actually happened. So maybe this will inspire me to look up some Mike Piazza Florida Marlins highlights on YouTube. Probably not there because, you know, it was from 1998 and... 
Piazza never went deep in a Marlins uniform, but here we get Hogan on TV, and he's wearing the all-whites, or as I call it for hockey, the, the road whites, and his shirt says American Made, so uh, not a Hogan shirt that you would see very often, and the all-white look is something that would disappear within a year or so. And, of course, he's taken on Rusty Brooks, the rotund enhancement talent who I love so dearly for his Tuesday Night Titans appearance in May of 1985 as the cocky guy of the... They were not calling them jobbers. They were not calling them unsung heroes. They were, they were calling them unsung heroes. They were not calling them enhancement talents or anything like that. And he showed a lot of personality there. And he wore a sort of singlet that was perhaps not flattering, which made him certainly memorable to anybody who has seen him work. He also has a YouTube account under Mr. Rusty Brooks, which has a lot of his matches, and I believe includes this one with Hulk Hogan. Now, Hogan is a little distracted and is pointing to the outside of the ring, and you can't see immediately what is going on. But it is the macho man Randy Savage who is standing on the floor and gesturing at Hogan. And one thing that's rather interesting about this match is Hogan is introduced first. And the reason for that is to set up what is to come. Hogan comes out, he's introduced. I think he was introduced at 309 pounds, or Vince says 309 later, which is very high on that Hogan weight scale. He was announced at 302 for the longest time, and then inexplicably in 89, he was introduced as 303. Must have been those um, <clears throat> movie uh, growth whatevers. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what it was, but... So Hogan's introduced first, and that allows them to set up Finkel to introduce, and his opponent, and Rusty Brooks, is in the ring. But before Finkel gets a chance to introduce Rusty Brooks, the great from Denton, Texas, he is interrupted, not by the macho man Randy Savage, but by the lovely Elizabeth? Yes, Liz, uh, resplendent in this uh, lovely dress that is appropriate fashion-wise for the time period and kind of black gloves that go up her arm. She casually strolls in the ring and in something out of the bizarro world, she is given the microphone by Howard Finkel and has something to say to Hulk Hogan. Holy crap, as, as a kid growing up who watched the Macho Man and Elizabeth would so very rarely ever speak, to see her in this sort of context in 1985 as a very aggressive character is just so bizarre given what she would become. And an original idea for Elizabeth's role was to be something like a character out of Dallas or a character out of Dynasty. Because in the mid-80s, those primetime soap opera-ish you know, dramas were very, very popular. Dallas was one of the biggest shows on television for much of the early to mid-80s. Dynasty was a really, really big deal. 
and Liz was maybe intended to be a character something like that. But, of course, she evolved into a more demure, um, I don't know, submissive sort of role, which might have been Randy Savage's influence. I don't really know. But Liz looked fairly comfortable in there, and she looked a lot more comfortable than she would say in 1996 and 97 WCW, which, by the way, is personally my favorite Liz from a looks perspective, if if I may be a little... um, uh, body for a moment but in any event Hogan is a little distracted so he starts gesturing towards Randy Savage to get in the ring or is you know gesturing towards him and Rusty Brooks says well this is my big chance of course this is actually a non-title bout and but Brooks comes from behind and lands a few punches a few blows and eventually they get to the corner and Hogan says enough enough of this and lands a couple of right hands of his own throws Brooks into the ropes clothesline and picks up the big man for an impressive looking body slam before landing the Hogan leg drop for the one two three and as Hogan is having his arm raised in the token of victory we see Savage from off screen He comes off the top rope and comes into the frame and lands with a double axe to Hogan's back. This was extremely well done because of how the viewer at home could not see it coming because Savage was completely out of the frame. So really cool there. And Savage doesn't have the upper hand for very long as Hulk kind of hulks up as it were and ends up knocking savage over the top rope on the far side of the ring and such starts the beautiful relationship of hulk hogan and randy savage as they would have some matches in late 85 and into early 1986 and some of hogan's best matches are during that time frame I love the Saturday Night's main event match that Hulk Hogan had with Terry Funk in January of 1986. In my journey through the Saturday Night main events that I've gotten to early 89 at this time on the blog, that's probably still my favorite match is Hogan-Funk. But Savage, you know, of course he would win the Intercontinental title in February, so he would kind of be away from Hogan then, although they did have a few champion versus champion matches where only the world title was at stake. But back to the bizarro nature of all of this, as Savage is hitting the retreat button here, and he's coming back down the aisle, Vince says that he's hiding behind Elizabeth's skirt, which is so crazy considering that Liz, that's that's not who she is. She was not she was actually more or less keeping Savage from coming back to the ring as Savage would, you know, really wanted to get back in there and uh give Hogan a little what for to make up for uh getting beat down there. But Hogan is gesturing at Savage to come on in, and we have the classic Hogan pose down in the ring, a much more abbreviated thing than you see with Real American at the end of what seemed like every pay-per-view in the late 1980s. And you get the pose down, but it's to Hulk Hogan's theme. (laughs) So just kind of bizarre 
to have Hogan uh, doing that whole bit. You just think of Real American as he's doing it. But this song also very good as well. And uh, Hogan at this time had my favorite world title belt of the era, which is commonly known as the Hogan 86 belt among belt collectors and people in the know, I guess is what you would call it. It's the Hogan belt that has like the flags of the countries on the little um, patches or whatever you want to call them, the medallions on the side of the belt. The stuff that is now personalized had like the flag of Australia, the flag of Great Britain and all that. I particularly like that one. It was a little bit more colorful, but not too colorful. Um, I don't know. I would certainly rank it ahead of the NWA license plate belt. I just like the way this one looks better. I don't know if I would rank it ahead of the big gold belt. During Hogan, One thing I have to point out, during Hogan's posing routine, I love how Howard Finkel is just chilling in the corner, like, eh, yeah, I'm just going to just gonna stand here, you know, with his arms on, on the ropes and kind of leaning up against the turnbuckle, just waiting for the next thing for this. Vince calls Hogan the people's champion, which I don't know if that was the first time that was said on WWF television. I'm pretty sure that he said it about Bob Backlund at, at a certain point. And uh, Vince, with a another great line, I'm sure we haven't seen the last of this one. And oh boy, Hogan and Savage just linked for, for a couple of decades to come. And uh, boy, what a rivalry that was, both inside the ring and outside the ring. The Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network. Subscribe on iTunes or on Android with your favorite podcast app. Established in 2013, the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network is committed to providing unique takes on the rich and diverse medium of professional wrestling, focusing on its history and global impact, but also exploring the vibrant contemporary scene. The roll call includes Space City, an NWA on-demand podcast. This Week in Wrestling. Stacey Elliott's Bogus Journey. The Super Apoitas Podcast. The Military Industrial Suplex. Strong Style History. Pure Puri. And Psychology is Dead. Also, from the archives, the full catalog of great shows that provided a fresh look at classic wrestling, including Where the Big Boys Play, Titans of Wrestling, Tag Teams Back Again, Letters from Kayfabe, Wrestling Culture, Pro Wrestling Super Show, Goodwill Wrestling, and many, many others. Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network. Only the best. Get a promo where Hillbilly Jim is with Okerlund. And uh, Jim, always kind of a happy-go-lucky guy, says that the people have been good to him. And they allude to his knee injury, although in actuality it was a broken leg. And Jim wants to take the opportunity to thank Dr. Tom Harris who was the surgeon that fixed up his leg. So I thought to myself, okay, Dr. Tom Harris, the injury took place in San Diego. Maybe I can cross-reference this with somebody. And yes, Dr. Thomas W. Harris, MD, is still working as a doctor. So if you break your leg in San Diego, you can call the same guy who fixed up Hillbilly Jim. He's at the Shoulder Knee Institute on Ruffin Road in San Diego, California. Before joining the San Diego Spine Center, 
Dr. Thomas Harris held positions as the director of two sports medicine clinics specializing in reconstructive and arthroscopic surgery, the Athletic Orthopedic Institute and the Shoulder Knee Institute. A graduate of the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, Texas, Harris complete, Dr. Harris completed his surgical internship at the University of Texas and served as a medical officer and orthopedic resident in the U.S. Navy. And he has quite a uh, long list of credentials here. He, uh, <laughs> he, he, he's been in a lot of different places, and he has a lot of professional experience, a lot, a lot of work with ski teams. He was associate team physician at one time for the San Diego Padres as well. So he was, uh, he, you know, worked with a lot of ski teams. Of course, skiing something that you can very, very easily injure your leg on. So nice little commercial there for the good doctor. And uh, Jim also says uh, things for um, co- uh, cousin Junior, cousin El- uh, Uncle Elmer, and cousin Luke. And the Cousin Luke thing always threw me for a loop when I would read about this guy and would never be able to actually see the footage before the era of YouTube. Because I always thought that Cousin Luke was Luke from the Bushwhackers because Butch would always refer to him as, Ah, Cousin Luke! And it's not. It's a completely different guy. So, yeah, this was not exactly the best improv performance in Gene Okerlund's career. They uh, try to do an improv bit involving pig farming and Uncle Elmer and the size of the pig farm. And then a little bit about Thanksgiving. Didn't really work, but, you know, they can't all be home runs. And we go back to Vince and Bruno, and they announced that Bruno is going to be donning the tights next week, thereby completely canceling out what I said a couple of weeks ago on my Bruno San Martino versus Larry Zabisco show, where I wondered, did Bruno ever wrestle on TV? Well, obviously, I, I was probably referring to his heyday in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, when it was very rare for Bruno to be on TV. And, of course, it's the sweeps period, so we're going to put Bruno on TV. Sweep, 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 sweeps. So that's it for this episode of Championship Wrestling. And uh, because of what I said at the top of the show... We do not have a YouTube comment theater. At one time, this episode may or may not have been on YouTube. And uh, I can relay to you my comment. I'm going to skip the Austin Powers music in the background. Uh, I said, this show is the Festival of the Masked Jobber. And that's all I had to say there. I do want to get to one thing in lieu of YouTube comment theater. Just a little something I'll call... Oh, the mailbag. <laughs> it's not really much of a creative name, but uh, of course you can always reach me at GF Allentown Pod on Twitter. But for something like this, the email is probably the best. Greetings from Allentown at gmail.com. And back in episode five, there was a reference to the Hulk Hogan hotline, which was the 900 hotline. It seemed like 900 hotlines were all the rage back in the early 1990s, where you call up and it's $3.99 for the first minute and 99 cents for each additional minute. And I had a listener, uh, Michael Staley, reach out to me and I <laughs> that he had called the Hulk Hogan hotline. And I said, please t- do tell me more about this because I'd like to know exactly the ins and outs. Did they stall you on the phone or how did it go? And uh, here's what he had to say. They gave me options for different things to do one after another to drag the time out. 
The two that stood out, including competing in a, quote, match against The Undertaker, where I had three minutes to win. Oh, so like a beat-the-clock thing. I had three moves, punch, body slam, and second rope elbow drop. I proceed to destroy him and finally figure, I'll go for an elbow drop, then pin him. But when I choose that option, Hulk tells me I don't have time for that. So instead, I slam him and go for the pin. Then I'm informed time is up and Hulk Hogan is coming in to rescue me. Like I needed his help. (laughs) Apparently, I could have won a replica belt if I'd won, but that clearly didn't happen. Then there was story time with Hulk. He proceeds to ramble on about this time he got a bunch of friends together to watch Suburban Commando and eat Domino's Pizza. Then people started randomly showing up for the party and they kept having to order more Domino's and Hulk made sure that I was aware that it was Domino's. They must have been a sponsor of the Hulk Hogan hotline. I don't remember how the story ended because after a while I started to zone out from it. Overall, it was definitely not worth the price that my parents had to pay on the phone bill that month. Yeah, those those 900 lines, they seemed like something from a certain place in history, and they did not last too much after the 90s ended. It's sort of like sort of like video stores, you know, not necessarily Blockbuster, but like the independent video store that you would have in your town. By the time the year 1999 rolled around, those things were dead. So that is it for this week's show. And and for next week's episode, well, I've, a few weeks back, I went up to Toronto. So I said, you know what? I'm going to do the episode of Maple Leaf Wrestling right now. Well, the day after this episode drops on June 8th, or more, June 9th is when I will be going, I will be heading down to Atlanta, Georgia to visit an old friend of mine who I've not seen in quite a few years, and we will be going to some New York Mets at Atlanta Braves game at, games at SunTrust Field, which should be uh, quite interesting and fun, given that that is a new stadium. So seeing as though I will be in Atlanta I figure it's time to jump back to WCW and take a look at WCW Main Event from December 23rd, 1990. And that is right after Starcade. And there are a couple of interesting things on this show. We have a very early Big Van Vader match for WCW. And the opening match on the show is Sid Vicious, which is just totally going to allow me to gush about Sid. I'm an unapologetic Sid fanboy, and you'll hear more about that. And I'm sure there'll be, you know, recaps of Starcade. I believe we got Tom Zank and Bobby Eaton in some sort of rematch from Starcade, even though it was probably taped beforehand because, well, you know, WCW. So all that, much more. Probably the return of YouTube Comment Theater, I hope. But do tune in next week for another exciting episode of Greetings from Allentown.